If you would stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Our scripture reading today is Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. We're gonna be focusing on the first three verses, um, but it's good to hear this all together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have attained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." grass withers and the flower fades. With this, the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that um, you have chosen to speak to us in such a faithful and enduring way. And we thank you that you have promised that as we interact with your word, as we listen to you, um, it is not just heard with our ears, but it is taken by the Holy Spirit and it is applied to us um, in ways that honestly are very difficult for us to even comprehend. We pray, Lord, that this would be true this morning, that your word would be heard, and that your spirit would work in us. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, One of the mottos, or the motto, of one of my leadership professors in seminary was pretty simple. It was culture wins. It wasn't a positive motto. I mean, what he was getting at is that at the end of the day, as hard as we work to make changes or cast vision or, I don't know, steer the ship in one direction or another, uh, culture wins. And and before we get too far into it, and I'm going to touch on this again a little later, uh, this wasn't um, a culture war statement. This wasn't a statement about that culture versus the church. Uh, It was talking about the culture in the church. And now who the church is in any given congregation has very little to do with teaching or doctrinal training or ministerial emphasis, but it has everything to do with human expectation and tradition and our personal sensitivities 
and the preferences of the people who make up a church and the people who have made up the church throughout the years of its existence. Even when, and maybe especially when, those people don't understand that they have those expectations or know where they come from. And even and especially when that culture that is built there is contrary um, to what the biblical definition of a church is. I know I probably shouldn't share trade secrets. Um, It's, yeah. This isn't an indictment of this church in any way. Um, I haven't been here long enough to really know the details of the culture at Grace. But from where I'm standing now, what I've seen is that very, very much of it is very healthy. But it's a reality that we have to engage with that the things that have a hold on us and who we are are real. And that it is very often hard, almost impossible, to allow something to move us away from those things that are embedded in our culture. The question of who are we as a church is so often driven by those cultural things. And the answer to that question is so often more a cultural answer than a biblical one. It's been my plan to start with you all by preaching through Ephesians. Um, This is the last thing that I preached at City Church. So, you know, if you happen to have been poking around the internet, some of it may sound familiar. Today is going to sound a lot familiar, but hopefully as we go on, there'll be some more clear differences. But I wanted to start here because who are we is a natural question to ask at a point like this, right? At this point in a church, in this point in the life of a minister, we, we start to kind of, that's, that's kind of the first question we're asking together. Is, all right, well, who are we? Where are we going? What is our purpose here? And there's a huge risk in these moments. That this becomes the perfect opportunity for our cultural baggage to take a really good hold of us as we answer that question. Sink itself deep into the DNA of who we are and who we're going to be for the next season of our life. Ephesians is a letter that Paul wrote to address that issue. To answer that question of who are we as the church. To a specific church, yes one who is struggling to know and to understand how living as the church of Christ looked any different from the way that they used to live, from the way that their culture around them lived. And we're not Ephesians, not necessarily. There's some pretty clear overlap. But it does us well to consider their situation and what Paul has to say to it as we start to have these conversations together. So we're going to be in Ephesians for a bit. Today, I just want to dip our toes in. You know, talk about setting and 
all those things, and then what Paul offers immediately to the church in Ephesus. So it's going to be background heavy. I know some people really love that, and other people find that a great opportunity to take a nap. That's okay. (laughs) But even in the background, Paul speaks the gospel pretty heavily into it all the way through. So let's talk about Ephesus for a minute. Ephesus was a pretty amazing place historically. Um, It was called the mother city of Asia Minor because it was this major cultural hub. It was a city of, of estimates are as high as 250,000 people. That was pretty huge for that time. And it was a major port city in the richest region of the Roman Empire. I mean, it was the place to be. And because of that, it was hugely influential on the culture of the day. It was a religious hub. Historically, we we look at it and there was this prominence, actually, one commentator calls it an extraordinary prominence, which I'm trying to figure out exactly how prominent that is, (laughs) of the goddess Artemis. In fact, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world was four times the size of the Pantheon in Athens. And twice a week, they would have processions parading her statue through the city. They had Olympic-style games in Ephesus dedicated to Artemis. And actually, Artemis in the ancient world was often called Artemis of Ephesus. But it wasn't just one god. Culture, the Roman culture in that time Um, was very pluralistic. Many gods were worshipped, and in the ancient world, and this is something that we, I think, struggle to to grasp, like, worshipping one god didn't diminish your worship for other gods. Like, they kind of considered the more gods in your stable, the better. And so pantheism was expected, it was encouraged, and in Ephesus, like, religion and spirituality was strong. This included folk beliefs, a strong attention to spiritual powers and their influence on the everyday lives of people, a hearty fear for evil spirits. The men of the people in Ephesus, they spent their life entreating the gods to change fate or to protect against spirits and nature and these things that would harm them. This included practice of witchcraft and magic. It's so prevalent in Ephesus that it was known as a place where magic flourished. They had their own magical language that are known as the Ephesian letters. And even Judaism in Ephesus appeared to be what we would call a folk religion form of Judaism. A lot of mysticism and folk remedies to combat the evil spirits that were perceived to be present So Ephesus was dominated by a cultural insistence in harnessing spiritual powers to protect or benefit the lives of the people. There was a fear of what it would look like not to do so. Ephesus was extremely multicultural, as you can probably imagine, in one of the wealthiest cities in the world, (laughs) a port city, a city that was in Asia Minor but was a part of the Roman Empire. 
People came there, not just came there. They weren't just passing through, they settled there. This was a destination. This is where you wanted to be. When you were a kid and you wanted to leave your little nowhere town, you wanted to go to Ephesus. That's where I'm going to go. And so there were people from all over Asia Minor. There were Romans. There was a Jewish population of between 10 and 20,000 people. So there was a blend of pagan and Hellenistic and Jewish culture. If you know anything about the Roman world, it's pretty common this be the case, but the Jewish population stood out in Ephesus. It talked about how it was very normal to assume that you're going to worship multiple gods. Being Jewish in Ephesus was tricky because you didn't make that assumption. It set them apart. They also did things like took Saturdays off and they had this picky diet. And in Ephesus, there's a lot of evidence that they were viewed as other uh, very strongly, that they were an outside group. So we have the diversity of a big city like this, but we also have division. We also have racial tension. We have vulnerability of the outsider. And on top of these things, being a d- diverse city that was, rat- that was racially and religiously um, all over the map and being prosperous and wealthy. It means not only were Greek and pagan sensibilities in terms of the distractions and pleasures that life entertained um, there, (laughs) they were readily available. We talk a lot about sinfulness in our modern culture. We like to do this as the church, right? How horrible we have it. I like to call that reverse cultural snobbery. Cultural snobbery is this term that Lewis came up with to say that, oh, we have things better than anyone's ever had it. I feel like we have the reverse these days. Oh, it's so much worse than it's ever been. Ephesus tells us we're wrong. Rome was a predominantly hedonistic culture and one of opportunity and abundance to boot characterized by sexual looseness, intense greed, violence, selfishness, you name it. It was in Rome, and not just was it present, but it was virtue, it was virtue to them. And in a multicultural melting pot like Ephesus, what tends to happen, just how people tend to do things, the vices and freedoms and um, expectations in those areas of cultures tend to rise to the surface, and the restraints of each system tend to be muddled. So Ephesus was a place where people followed their desires pretty openly. And it was in this context where this this place that was founded, that was held by human brokenness and fear of evil spirits and division. And Paul Paul will uh, describe these things as three forms of evil 
He calls them the devil of the world and the flesh. The devil of those oppressive evil powers and worldly influences that are beyond our control. You know, demons, but also things like suffering and sickness and death. The world, those social evils and injustices like division and strife and hatred and the flesh, those immoral desires that we seek after. And Paul will contend that to be culturally in Ephesus is to be oppressed by these powers. And he writes to this new community in Ephesus, this church that's forming. He writes this letter because as honest as these new Christians were, they were struggling to separate their new life from the culture that they were a part of for so many years. Paul sees them as victims of these three powers. And we see this. We, we know this about the church in Ephesus. We know that Ephesians converted to Christianity. Most of them were, were Gentile Christians that came out of paganism. But they operated in the new church like, hey, this Jesus guy is awesome. But for many of them, one, it was the first time they were asked to go up there, the deities. But also they're living in this culture that is so aware of the dangers around them and so used to, like, getting any help from the gods that you could to protect yourself. There's a lot of evidence that Ephesian Christians, while worshiping Jesus, continued in their folk religion practices, continued in their magic practices. Actually, in Acts, Luke tells us about this, this event that happens in Ephesians. And at the end of this event, um, the Christians in the church, they, they burned their magical texts. And, it's, and he tells us that there were 50,000 silver pieces worth of texts. That's a lot of magical texts. Like everybody still had their little book of magic. That cultural pull towards fear over the powers of the spirits that manifested themselves in things like illness and, and disasters and death, it was winning in the church leading followers of Jesus into anxiety and adultery. The church in Ephesus also, like Ephesus at large, was multicultural. And like Ephesus at large, there was a great deal of division. We see this in a number of Paul's letters. There's this big division in, in the early church between uh, the Jewish and the Gentile believers. Ephesus is a little bit different because a lot of places we see a Jewish majority here that's not the case. <laughs> Here, the majority Gentile church seemed to be struggling with the minority Jewish church. And this was leading to a lot of vulnerability for that population in the church. And this new community was looking very divided. This cultural pull towards racial division and prejudice and distrust was winning, leading to divisiveness and enmity. And on top of this, the primary Gentile converts in one of Rome's most metropolitan cities, they were struggling to let go of the practices and vices that they had chased for so long before becoming converts. They've lived a life where their fleshly desires were encouraged and catered to, and then converted to Christianity and were called to live in a new way. 
we're finding it hard to give up those things. Culture's embrace of the desires of the flesh was winning in the church in Ephesus, leading to sexual deviance, greed, malice, covetousness, you name it. As we look at these problems, the fear of these powers and the idolatry that it brings, the tribalism of division and the enmity that it breeds, our fleshly indulgences and the sin that comes from that, we see a culture winning in the Ephesian church that honestly looks a lot like the culture winning in the church today. No, it's not exactly the same. The specific places where fears and divisions and sins are present in our life don't line up completely with Ephesians. But we have the same cultural poles to what we we talk about the three powers of evil, the devil, the world, and the flesh. And as I mentioned from the outset, and I'm going to say this pretty strongly, whenever I decry culture from the pulpit, and I will, I want to be really clear that I'm never wittingly engaging in the evangelical culture wars that are going on. That's not my point. This imaginary battle, one that Jesus never took part in, by the way, between the culture of the world out there and the culture of the church in here, and even more so, I'm not and never engaging in a right versus left cultural division. I think that whole thing is just another cultural perversion of the church. The culture that I decry that's opposed to Christ, is the culture of the world, and it rages and strikes of the gospel from both sides of our culture war, from the right and from the left, and it's just as prevalent in the church as it is outside of the church. We just baptize it and deceive ourselves that it is godly. And we have to see that. Regardless of your history, your background, your political allegiances, or even how long you've been in the church, you are engaged in a lifelong struggle against the devil and the world and the flesh. We are engaged in the church in a lifelong struggle against these powers of evil. And this is why we must hear the words of Paul and allow those words, allow the gospel to shape who we are as the church Because just like Ephesus, if we don't hear what's being offered to us, we will be a church that does not understand what it means to follow Christ. And we will define that in our own terms. We all fear evil forces, the devil. We don't see it the same way, right? We're not superstitious. We're more scientific than they were. We have a long conversation as we go through about the presence of evil spirits, real evil spirits. But we, we don't learn witchcraft and magic spells. We don't sacrifice to, you know, the pantheon of gods. But some ways that makes our demons worse. We deny real spiritual warfare taking place and live naive to the reality of our fears. And so we put our fears into things like our economy, our political realities, and our lack of safety. We sacrifice to the modern deities that, pr- that promise us security. 
The financial gods of Rome have been replaced by our 401k. The god of the emperor has been replaced by our political parties. Those gods of personal protection, well, we don't sleep with talismans and magic books, but we sleep with guns under our pillows and cameras on our doorbells. Goodness knows we sleep better if we know that our premiums have been met. This isn't to discount real spiritual powers, but in our society, we fear the tangible a lot more. And I think that old adage that the devil's greatest trick is convincing us that he doesn't exist is very true in our culture. We all struggle with tribalism, that struggle with the world. It may not be racial like in Ephesus, but, but come on. It is racial. We struggle with that still intensely. The universal church is divided. It is segregated, it is tribalistic. And it's not just racial, it's worse than that. We divide by every possible way that we can, by class, by age, by political allegiance, every way. To the extent that when churches talk about their diversity, they're usually measuring that with a much smaller stick than everybody else does. If you're like, oh, our church is really diverse. And you're like, I don't know. Same race, same income bracket, roughly the same age. You like different music? <laughs> and even within these tribal pockets that we create in the church, we are still divisive, we are still suspicious of one another, we are still disunified. And heaven knows that we all struggle with the flesh. Personal sin is a real issue. Maybe our culture isn't exactly like Ephesus, though I think it probably is. We can chase every vice that we want to in our world. And it might sound like I'm banging the cultural drum that I decried earlier, but it is highly problematic that the sexual ethic of the church is increasingly indistinguishable from that of the world. And increasingly, we affirm these things. We celebrate these things. But my good conservative cultural warrior friends, hold your amens for a second, because sex is not our only sin, nor is it our worst. We are arrogant and prideful and self-righteous. We gossip and slander and judge. We are greedy, covetous, and jealous. We are angry, hateful, and bitter. Not to mention that we've all but abandoned the central commands of justice that were given throughout scripture. Care for the marginalized, the poor, the outsider, the refugee, the alien, the widow, and the orphan. We are a sinful, flesh-driven people. So we need to hear what Paul has to say to the Ephesian church, because we are the Ephesian church. And I would argue that we need to hear it even more so in moments like this, where we are really thinking about who we are and who we're going to be. Because the opportunity for our own cultural desires and tendencies to creep into that picture, it's there and it's dangerous. 
And we need to find this church through the words that were given by Paul in the gospel. So what does he say? We're going to talk about that for a few months. Paul's letter addresses all of this. But in great Pauline fashion, he hits it right off the back, so very, very quickly. I want us to hear the good news. How we actually escape the oppression of these forces and build a church that the culture is actually Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read the first three verses again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He answers this question right off the bat, I think, in three ways. He says who he wants, what he wants for Ephesus, how they get that, and he says where that thing comes from. Grace and peace are the key. You want to summarize it down to one thing? What do we need? (laughs) What do we need to be a church, a culture that is centered in Christ, we need grace and peace from the Father and from Jesus Christ. We need peace for our fears and our concerns of all those things that threaten us, the devil, the world, and the flesh, and we need grace in order to overcome them. Are you fearful? May God give you grace to find peace from your fears. Are you suspicious and bitter and oppressed or or oppressed and marginalized? May God give you grace to find peace with your brothers and sisters. Are you drowning in your sin? May God give you grace so that you might have peace in your struggle. Paul tells them this right off the bat. You will overcome this through grace and peace. Okay, so these deeply rooted cultural chains, we're going to shed them through grace and peace. I don't know. I've been trying to lean in grace and peace all my life, and it's pretty hard to throw things off. It's got to be more than that. It has to be more practical than these terms that mean a lot, but we use kind of as buzzwords. Well, he tells us this as well. This is how you're going to use grace and peace, how you're going to get them. Because God gives us every spiritual blessing. Here again, you will overcome because God has given you some spiritual gifts. Nope. Because God has blessed you with enough spiritual gifts. That's not it either. You will overcome because God has blessed you with abundant spiritual gifts. I like that, but it's still not it. He says he has blessed you with every spiritual gift. Every single thing that he can give you, he gives you. And no spiritual gifts, spiritual blessings is a little ambiguous. We'll talk about three particular ones next week and even more as we go through. But today, this is what we want to see. 
There are blessings in this relationship that we have, this covenant that we have with God. Blessings that come through, through being a part of and citizens of this kingdom that God gives us access to. Powers that are greater than those we fear. A unified body that can overcome the divisions that we are so entrenched in and a new life that is holy and free. And we need to see that whatever is holding us back, whatever it is, is met directly by the blessings that God gives us. He actually calls them, he says, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And actually, that's an important phrase It's not differentiating the physical and the spiritual, but what it's telling us is like the good tools that God gives us are tools that we don't have in our tool shed. We just don't have them. See, when the Ephesians were working to live life, even as Christians, through their cultural context, they couldn't do it because they needed something that they didn't have. And this is what God gives us. So, okay, great. We have these vague, powerful gifts. Except that when I went out to my tool shed this morning, I didn't see anything new out there. So where do they come from? Paul tells us this pretty directly, too, and very repetitively. He names it for himself. He names it for the Ephesians. The source of that blessing is in Christ. This is a famous very overused statement that Paul uses. In Christ, he uses it all over the place. We wrestle with it. We parse out the the Greek to figure out what they're actually talking about. It's going to take us a while to get to the bottom of in Christ. In Ephesians, he uses it 20 times. Twenty times. So it's important. We use it as a fig- figurative platitude, right? That's kind of what we do. We read it, and it's this comfort blessing. Like, it doesn't really mean anything, but it makes us feel good to be in Christ. It's not what it is. It is literal, and it is powerful. It's going to take us a while to get to it. But this is what you need to hear today, that the message of the gospel is that you who were a slave to the devil and to the world and to the flesh, you can be freed from those chains by the work of Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Because when you know him and believe in him, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have union with Jesus Christ. And a level that is profound, that is mind-boggling, and honestly, often uncomfortable, to anybody who isn't experiencing that union. Our lives are in him. We are no longer just men and women and children of Ephesus oppressed and beaten down by the devil and the world and the flesh, but we are new people, a new culture who have every spiritual blessing that we need to overcome fear and conflict and sin. And we have this in Jesus Christ. This is what one commentator says about this. He says, the key for understanding this letter is recognizing that believers have a new identity in Christ, a new self-understanding based on a new reality. 
permeates every aspect of life and transforms individuals. That's what it is, grace and peace that lead to spiritual blessings and abundance, more than an abundance, because we are in Christ. That's a lot of background for bite-sized payoff, but it's a very important one. We'll dissect it and develop it over the next few months. But hear the good news now. If you call on Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, you have a new life. You are a new society. And that new life and that new people that you are a part of is a life and a people of grace and peace in him. It is a powerful new life. It is filled with every spiritual blessing. And as we become more and more aware of that new in Christ identity that we have, and as we walk more and more in those in Christ blessings that we have, culture starts to lose. Because Jesus wins that battle against the powers that we fear, against the devil, against the divisions that we create, against the world, and against the sin that we wrestle with against the flesh. Brothers and sisters, this is his promise to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this profound reality that we are just beginning to talk about, but where you have saved us from the powers that we cannot stand up to. That you have freed us from the spiritual and real oppression of evil by bringing us into relationship with you and with your son. We pray, Lord, that this would be real to us. We pray that you would prepare us, Lord, to go through um, this, this message well, so that this might be a church that is founded on who answers the question of who are we on our relationship with you and the reality that we have in Jesus Christ. I pray this for your glory and the sake of your kingdom, in the name of your Son. Amen.